So we finished the book of Acts, and there was, with Easter, there's kind of a weird break where we had a few weeks uh, before I wanted to start our, our series that we're going to start next week on discipleship, where I took questions from you guys and just kind of wanted to know, hey, what are you all thinking about? What's on your mind? What issues are you struggling with? You all submitted a bunch of questions. Some were very, very uh, good questions that I chose not to do simply because it's too big of a an issue or topic to deal with in one sermon. Um, this week, we actually, the, the guy who submitted this one, Corbin Dawkins, you might be happy to hear, I chose Corbin's question. And partly I'm imagining Corbin is in college, he's about to graduate. The question he submitted essentially comes down to, how, how do we know that our English Bibles are historically reliable? There's a lot of other questions you wrapped into that. That was the biggest question when I was in college. I came to faith in college. Um, and, and within weeks, that was the, the question that my atheist professors challenged me on. And as a young Christian, I had no idea how to answer it. But I'm going to say this. It is an incredibly important question, not just for skeptics. This is a question for the church to know. Okay, um, So you guys know... I actually uh, spent, in my seminary degree, eight years of my life preparing to deal with issues like this. Now, this issue is, apologetic issues are usually not something I'd preach from the pulpit on all the time. This is a little bit different. I want you to see where this falls into the case for Christianity, the case for our faith, as far as I will teach our church and as far as I'll lead our church. Um, we, I, I was trained in a very systematic approach to establishing the faith. Um, and it's 12 steps. And I want you to see where this question fits in that. First one is truth about reality is knowable. Unfortunately, we live in a culture that denies that. Um, and so we have to establish that basic truth. Second, the opposite of true is false. Again, we live in a relativistic society that says all views are true. Um, we have to establish, no, the opposite of true is false. Third point, which is probably the biggest point, it is true that a theistic God exists. And now we spend tons of our time dealing with how do we know there is a God? Because if we say that this is the Word of God, that's presupposing that there's a God who speaks. How do we know there's a God who speaks? We can't simply presuppose it as circular reasoning, and atheists love to jump on that. Well, if it's true that a theistic God exists, then four, it's true that miracles are possible. In fact, the greatest one of uh, creation has already happened. We're here. Fifth one, miracles miracles are possible. The miracles done in connection with the truth claim are acts of God to confirm the message of God through the messenger of God. That brings us to the sixth point. The New Testament documents are reliable. Now, if we can't trust what's written in your Bible, how do you know what you're believing really happened is really true, is relevant today as it ever was. If this is not historically reliable, what are we doing? We believe as Christians that our faith is rooted in historical fact. This is not superstition. This is not wishful thinking. This is not wishing upon a star. What we believe and what we're told by the authors of the, the Bible is that these were historical events recorded, and given to us. That's important, okay? That's a very important point to establish. 
Okay, here's the other six points. Uh, if I saw some of you taking pictures of them. If you want to complete the apologetic approach to Christianity to establish that Jesus is God and the Bible is the Word of God, there's the other six that we're not going to cover. Um, additionally, here's some questions that are wrapped up in today's issue that I won't cover, but are important questions. And I just want you to be thinking about this. One, what about all the apocryphal books? Okay, Roman Catholics, for instance, have uh, the apocryphal books in their Bible, in their canon. Um, how did we arrive at the canon of Scripture? It's just one of Corbin's questions that he wrapped into this. How did we arrive at the standard? The canon literally means rule. How did we arrive at these books in here as the rule of faith? By what process was the canon formed? And, and you may not know this. There's actually a ton of wealth of evidence showing that. Okay, so it's a very good study. Why are the apocryphal books left out of the canon? Why do we as Protestants not consider those to be inspired and authoritative? And then last, which is we're going to answer, are, are, are translations derived from the original Greek and Hebrew or from Latin or any other languages? Okay, we'll, You'll have the answer to that by the end of this study. Okay, So as I just said, this is a good question for the believer or the skeptic. I, I say that because as believers... I don't want you to, if there's a skeptic friend that you have or a family member who's not a believer, this is more than likely one of their issues with the faith. Well, the Bible you hold has just been changed and translated and lost, right? You can't trust that thing. I'm sure that that's one of their issues. And I don't want you to get frustrated with their question because it's a legitimate question. And so you can listen to these questions I just want you to be equipped to answer it. So that's, that's what I'm aiming to do today, okay? So these are challenges for Christians to honestly face and have answers for. Are the books of the New Testament specifically, you know, we could cover the Old Testament, I'm not going to focus at all on the Old Testament. Are the books of the New Testament historically reliable or not? And more specifically, the Gospels, okay? That's, um, that's really where we're going to start. So in that question... I broke it down into two issues that needed to be looked at that are in that overall question. One, are the documents that we now have corrupted with myth? And second, are the documents that we have corrupted with errors from over the centuries of copying? Now, real quick, I want you to read. Um, we're going to read two passages to establish that, hey, you may believe that the New Testament's overlaid with myth, but at least the New Testament writers themselves believe they were reporting actual events, okay? Go to Luke chapter 1, and then we're going to go to John. And we'll look at this again at the end, but we'll read it now. Luke chapter 1, Luke at least believed he was writing history, okay? He certainly didn't believe it was myth. Here's how Luke opens his gospel. And what's important about this is he's writing to a, a higher-up man named Theophilus, who is probably a Greek... Um, we don't really know who he was, but uh, given his name and his, how Luke addresses him, he was probably a very prominent man. So here's how Luke writes to this man. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative. Now just stop right there. Luke actually tells us in his day that there were other people compiling a narrative of what happened during the life of Christ. He's not the only one. Now, we have at least three others, right, in our canon. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us 
just as those who from the beginning, now pay attention, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Those who are eyewitnesses to the events, Luke says, have delivered those events to us. Do you see the historical importance of that statement? Absolutely paramount. At least Luke believed what he's handing to us was historical. And he points it back to those who are eyewitnesses. Now, it's, the reason I'm reading Luke is that Luke was not one of the apostles. He was a contemporary to one, the Apostle Paul. Okay? And so he is very, very careful to record everything in detail. You get the sense when you read Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, that Luke took no chances. He seems like one of those people that just was systematic in every way. He covered all of his bases so that if anybody tried to challenge it, he has all the evidence that's needed. That's the kind of person Luke was. Go to the Gospel of John. And of course, John is John the Apostle. And he again tells us why he wrote this Gospel. In John chapter 20, beginning in verse 30, he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so in other words, everything He just wrote for us in His Gospel is written, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now I'm going to come back to that passage at our end. Okay, But once again, the Apostle John states his purpose. Why did he write all that happened, all that Jesus did? Okay, now I say not all. Right? He did many, many, many other things. But everything that John wrote, why did he write it? We can believe it. It's his purpose. He also says in his letter, 1 John, that he was an eyewitness, that he tasted, he touched, he felt, he handled these things, right? He's not some guy who is not privy to what happened. He handled this stuff. You can trust it, in other words, according to their claims. But here's what a popular claim is. This is written by a lady named Karen Armstrong, who oddly enough used to be a nun, and now she's just a liberal critic. Now, the title of her book, A History of God, sounds pretty awesome, right? Don't read it. (laughs) Here's what she says. We know very little about Jesus. The first full-length account of his life was St. Mark's Gospel. That's true. We we hold that St. Mark was the first Gospel. However, she says it was not written until about the year 70, some 40 years after his death. Now, we're going to see after the study, that's not really a problem. I don't agree with that date, but that, even if that is the date, that's not a problem. Here's the problem. She says, by that time, historical facts had been overlaid with mythical elements which expressed the meaning Jesus had acquired for His followers. It is this meaning, the mythical elements, that St. Mark primarily conveys rather than a reliable, straightforward portrayal. You understand the gravity of that quote. If what she says is true, what she's saying is that all Mark really recorded was not the events themselves. What Mark recorded for us, and and subsequently the other authors, are just all the myths that had crept in by that point. So all that you guys are reading day in and day out is just the mythical elements, not the historical root. 
Is there precedent for this? Let's be honest. Okay? This view, the argument of mythology, holds that the New Testament authors created the events they write rather than simply reporting the events as eyewitnesses. There's a big difference. It's a serious charge. And not only that, if we're going to be honest, the charge of mythology creeping into historical accounts is does have historical precedence. We do know that mythology creeps into historical accounts over time. But does that argument have historical precedence with the New Testament? That's the real question. I'm going to give you a good example, okay? Case in point of how mythology creeps in. But I'm going to give you some facts about mythology. It's beyond a doubt at this point with, with scholars, with critics, that it takes two full generations for mythology to even begin, okay? Now understand that. When was Jesus crucified? 33 A.D. Even if Mark was written in 70 A.D., how many years is that later? It's 37 years later. That's still within one generation. Not enough time for mythology to creep in. And this is not a Christian argument. This is actually historical scholars recognize it's too early for mythology to creep in because in the first generation that things happen, there's eyewitnesses to it. And they can easily say, nah, that's not what happened. It's not even until the second generation that those things begin to be spoken about, and then as many generations later where it actually is believed. Here's the case in point. How many of you have ever heard, in fact, I saw Iran state this on TV, how many of you have ever heard people argue that the Holocaust was, was a myth? Have you heard the argument? The Muslim world preaches that right now. Iran had it on their state TV. I saw the clips. There's many people who argue that the, the Holocaust didn't happen. Well, guess what? We're in the second generation of it. It's beginning, but we can easily prove it happened still, right? We can easily prove the Holocaust happened. But here's the problem. For those people who are cut off from information and the ability to test that claim the next generation will believe it as absolute, won't they? That's the problem. That's a good case in point. There is precedence that mythology creeps in, but it's not until two generations later, and then it's not only that, you have to be separated from the events themselves. It's easy to say the Holocaust didn't happen when you're sitting in Tehran, Iran. Go over to Europe, and it's, it's harder to argue that the Holocaust didn't happen. Correct? So you have to have separation from the events themselves. Well, the New Testament we're going to see, and I'm going to argue, was written within the lifetime in the first generation of the eyewitnesses themselves at the locations. Okay, Let's date the New Testament. Why is this important? Okay, Now, guys, what I did for this is um, I just summarized the most important of, of the elements. Okay, There is literally so much evidence for what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, you just simply can't get it all in. And, and here's my challenge. If you have a friend, a family member, co-worker, whoever, who, who tries to argue that the New Testament is not historically reliable, one, take their questions seriously. But if they try to, to say emphatically that the, the books were written you know, way beyond the lifetime of the Paul, whatever, okay, what that tells me is they've actually never looked at it. 
One who can seriously argue, as we're going to see some try, has have never really looked at the evidence. Okay? Here's a summary of the dates that we have now dated the original Gospels. Okay? Mark is considered to be the first, and we consider that because there's a lot of internal evidence in Mark that Matthew and Luke used Mark's Gospel as a source. Okay? And, and most scholars believe Mark was written between 50 and 55. Some put it at 60, 70 A.D. Matthew, sometime around the same period. Well, how many years after that is, is that after Jesus' death? 17 to 25 years. People are still alive who witnessed it, right? They could pick up Mark's Gospel and say, yeah, that's exactly what happened. I saw it. They can verify it. Luke... We arrive at Luke's date of 60 A.D. because of the book of Acts that we just finished. Remember how Luke ended the book of Acts 28? I said, Luke, I, I told you when we were in Acts, this is an incredibly important book for many reasons. One, it gives us the narrative of the early church, but there's so much information beyond that. Luke ended the book of Acts without talking about Paul's second imprisonment, the fall of Rome, Paul's beheading. None of those events he recorded. And, and every scholar agrees it's because they hadn't happened yet. Well, we know the dates of those events. Paul was beheaded around 66 A.D. Jerusalem fell to the Romans in 70 A.D. And so Acts must have been before 66 A.D. And given the fact we know Paul went to Spain and da-da-da-da roughly three years after his first imprisonment, you can backtrack that to 63-62 A.D. for the composition of Acts. Well, we know Acts also is the second part of two-volume set. He opens the book of Acts saying, of the first account that I wrote to you, Theophilus, he's referring to his gospel. So if Acts is in 62 AD, Luke is probably written around 60 AD. How many years after Jesus' death is that? 27 and 29 years. Still within the first generation of eyewitnesses. The gospel of John we'll get to in a second. 1 Corinthians. Turn to 1 Corinthians with me real quick. It's one of the most important books, again, not only for, for the spiritual reasons we know, 1 Corinthians, historically, as far as the documents themselves, is incredibly important. We hold that 1 Corinthians was one of the earliest books written, 55 to 56 AD, the very latest. However, in chapter 15, let's read this. Beginning in verse 1, here's what Paul writes. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was raised, and that He was raised on the, or that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What did Paul just give us there? An incredibly important historical nugget. He actually quotes what's believed to be the earliest scripture formulated within two years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's verses 3 and 4. That formula there, the, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and following, 
is believed to be the earliest scriptural record we have. Paul was converted two years after Christ was crucified. And this saying was likely already spreading around the church at that time. Now, it's, all, it's not just for our sake. It's not just the core of our faith there. It's reporting historical fact. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus was raised. He's stating it emphatically as historical fact. So what we have in 1 Corinthians, and then what follows is he gives a whole list of witnesses that Jesus appeared to. Now, I don't know if you notice this. Who's missing? Who did he start with? It says, he appeared to Cephas. Is that who he first appeared to? Who's left out? The women. Why? It's not because Paul was anti-woman, as some liberal scholars would say. No. It's because what Paul's doing here, he knows that this will be challenged. He's writing a historical case. And unfortunately, in that day, women were not allowed to testify in a court of law. So he makes a historical case starting with Cephas, although the women were the first. So we know this is a historical legal argument that Paul's making. And he just hands it to us. So that's why 1 Corinthians is so important. I want to give you, if we, if we can get within two years of the death and burial of Christ with that little statement, I want to give you a comparison to the two earliest biographies of Alexander the Great. Now, how many has heard of Alexander the Great? Everyone. His two biographers were named Arian and Plutarch, probably heard of. They didn't write the biography of Alexander the Great till 400 years after he lived. 400 years. Alexander's death was in 323 B.C. 400 years later, they finally wrote about him. And yet, no one questions the historical accuracy of those biographies. Gap of 400 years. We're within two. And, oh, you can't believe that. Even the liberal scholar we read, 70 A.D., is still within the first generation. It's not a problem. Even though we believe Mark was earlier, give it 70 A.D., it's still within the time of eyewitnesses. They would have been alive. As Paul said of his account in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, the Gospel of John is the last Gospel believed to be written. Um, and before uh, this piece, the John R Ryland's fragment, of the Gospel of John was found, um, scholars who call give themselves that title um, said John wasn't written till 160 A.D. or later, 200 plus A.D. sometimes. Well, John, as we saw, claimed no. He claimed to be the author, and he claimed that he was reporting direct events. Well, of a date with 160, that's a fraud, right? I mean, whoever wrote the Gospel of John, it must not have been the Apostle John. That's until this little fragment, and I include it here because this little fragment literally changed New Testament scholarship. Even the liberals who don't believe in the Scriptures had to amend their theories because of this little thing. What this is, this was found way down on the Nile River, Nile Delta in Egypt. Okay? And it contains five verses from the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Um, it mentions 
Pontius Pilate is the one who crucified and was over Jesus' trial. Pontius Pilate was, was rejected even being a historical figure for a long time. So it contains five verses from John 18 we can identify, and it's dated anywhere between at the earliest 98 A.D. to 130 A.D. As I said, liberal scholars before that said the Gospel of John wasn't even written until 160 to 200 plus A.D. Okay, So it changed everything because... The reality is, this portion of John 18, way down in Egypt, John wrote his gospel way up in Ephesus. It would take a long time, one, for them to copy these, and for it to travel way down to Egypt. And if this is dated even to 130 at the latest, John must have been written within the first century. Again, anything within the first century was within the time of eyewitnesses themselves. So the Gospel of John, this little fragment, changed everything. Scrolls, you've heard of the Qumran scrolls, right? A little shepherd boy throwing rocks in a cave. He threw a rock in a cave, heard some shattering, climbed up there and found, oh, what are all these? <laughs> and they found multiple scrolls in multiple caves since. Tons of scrolls, different writings. In Cave 7, they found portions of all these books. And they were all the scrolls were dated between 55 to 70, 55 BC to 70 AD at the latest. Again, 70 AD is well within the time of the scrolls. Well, we have par- portions of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 428, identified. AD 50, Mark 6, 52, AD 50, Mark 12, AD 50, Acts 27, AD 60. What do we hold? We hold that Acts was written around 62. Romans, AD 70, 1 Timothy, 2 Peter, James. Those were all copies. Again. The originals were earlier than that. You see the, the case that's being made here? In other words, we have such a tight case for the documents and the dating of them being so close to the original events, it's almost beyond dispute. And here's what liberal scholars are now saying. This man, William F. Albright, is not necessarily a conservative guy. Here's what he said. We can already say emphatically that there's no longer any solid basis for dating any book of the New Testament after about 80 AD. Jesus crucified in 33. Two full generations before the date of 140 to 150 given by the more radical New Testament critics of today. In my opinion, every book of the New Testament was written very probably sometime between 50 and 75 AD. That is huge. Well, that doesn't settle our case, though. Isn't it still true that all we have is copies of copies of copies that have been changed? Well, the answer is yes and no. Yes, it's true that all we have is copies of copies. We do not possess the originals. We don't. And I think that's a good thing, actually, (laughs) that we don't possess the originals. This doesn't mean, however, that we cannot be confident that what we do have is not accurate. We have more copies and evidence of accuracy than of any other ancient manuscript. And not only that, this issue of copies of copies of copies is not unique to the New Testament or the Old Testament. It's unique to every ancient work. So if someone's going to throw this at at our case, they have to throw it at their cases too. Just to be fair, let's look at this, okay? By comparison, let's look at Homer's Iliad, which is said to be the Greek's Bible, some people call it. Homer's Iliad is the closest comparison that we have. 
Fewer than 643 copies of Homer's Iliad exist. And yet they don't date until 1,000 years after the original was composed, 850 B.C. Okay? Tacitus, I've quoted Tacitus. He was a Roman historian. No friend of Christians, but report. we get a lot of valuable information out of Tacitus. He wrote a 16-volume set of the annals of Imperial Rome in 116 A.D. originally. The first six books we have in one manuscript. Not dated till around 850 A.D. Books 11 through 16 are in a different manuscript. They don't date till the 11th century A.D. Almost a thousand years later. The middle books, the middle set, we don't even possess anymore. Even copies. That's the next closest. Josephus, who was a Jewish man living during the time of the apostles, reported much on Jesus, on the apostles, on the church. He wasn't a Christian. He wrote his Jewish war during that time. We have only nine Greek manuscripts written from the 10th, 11th, and 12th century. I have a copy of of Josephus. I, I consult it when I do study. No one questions his accuracy. Well, how many copies of the New Testament do we have? Full or partial? Greek copies, which is the language of the New Testament, 5,864. Other languages, including Latin, Syriac, Coptic, Gothic, Georgian, Armenian, Ethiopic, and more, 18,000 plus. Total count, nearly 24,000 partial or full text within the first 800 years. You can't even compare that. But there's more. Quotes from the early church fathers, 36,289. In fact, it was the New Testament was quoted so prolifically, you could recompose. If we lost every Bible in the world, you could reconstruct the entire New Testament minus 11 verses. Eight of those are the book of 3 John. It was the only book never quoted from. That means three verses out of every other book. 26 books in the New Testament. Only three verses weren't quoted by the early church fathers. That is unprecedented. Now, let me go back to the comparison. Homer's Iliad, 643. There's pretty good manuscript evidence. Look at the long date, thousand years later. We just established the dates for ours, right? Beginning from the early 2nd century, the John Rylands fragment you saw is the earliest we have. All the way through, we have so many manuscripts to look at. F.F. Bruce, is a good scholar, said this, There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was the director of the British Museum at one point, no slouch, here's what he said, In no other case is the interval of time between the composition, the original, of the book and the date of the earliest manuscripts so short as in that of the New Testament. The last foundation for any doubt that the Scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. So let me say this, church. What we have is copies. That's true. But we have so much manuscript evidence written so close to the actual events, there's no longer room to doubt their authenticity. It's just simply unprecedented when you compare it to other ancient literature. Well, 
Still one more question to answer. What about errors within the text? This is a big challenge. I want you to understand this. One, Greek is inflective. And what that means is that, that when you read a Greek sentence, the subject can be anywhere in that sentence because the word itself is constructed in such a way where wherever you read it in the sentence, you know that that's the subject. Now, that's not so in the English. Okay? I'll give you an example. The shark bit the man versus the man bit the shark. Does it mean the same thing? The subject's in a different spot. Very simple example. That's not how the Greek works. You can move the subject around in the sentence. That's just how the language is written. Okay. Now, there are times where words should be in certain spots, but it's not a big deal if it's not. 200,000 errors in the Scripture. You might have heard that number. Now, I'll say this. 200,000 errors is a big number, but it is misleading. Okay? And they're not really errors. Okay? Let me explain this to you because this is a major point you're going to be contested on in, in your belief in the accuracy and authenticity of the, of the word. Okay, if one letter from one word was misspelled in 2,000 manuscripts and then it was copied, right? So a scribe misspelled one word using one wrong letter, and this is the majority of these quote-unquote errors, and then it was copied 2,000 times, that's counted as 2,000 errors. Is it 2,000 errors? No, it's one. Copied over and over and over. That's, that's just how they calculate these. Or if a word was placed, as I said, in what would be considered the wrong place 1,000 times, and that's considered 1,000 variants. Now, by an overwhelming amount, these 200,000 or so variants um, occur within simple grammatical things like a misspelled word or the wrong place of the word. They are very minor, but there are some. Uh, these textual scholars, Westcott and Hoyt, estimate that only one in 60 variants has any significance, leaving the text, in their estimation, 98.33% accurate. However, uh, when you get dig deeper, um, there's actually greater accuracy than that. Bruce Mesker, who's considered the expert at this, his analysis of all these 200,000 variants in the New Testament, he says they're 99.5% free of textual discrepancies. We can identify the error, we can isolate it, and we still know what the word is. Okay? Philip Schaeff, who I love, he's a historian, a scholar, he lived in the 1800s, he calculated, this is, in the 1800s they knew of 150,000 variants, he said only 400 of those 150,000 in his day changed the meaning of a verse, however big or small. The shark bit the man, the man bit the shark. Okay, two different meanings. Only 400 changed the meaning of a verse. Only 50 of those 400 were of real significance, meaning it was a more important issue, but here's what he said. Not even one variant affected an article of faith or precept of duty which is not abundantly sustained by other and undoubted passages or by the whole tenor of Scripture teaching. What he's saying is this. We have so many copies that we can go look at that date so close to the originals. If we find an error here that changes the meaning of a verse, guess what we can do? Go check it against all these other ones. No other text enjoys what we get to enjoy. Okay? 
And so, not one doctrine of Scripture is affected by any of the variants. So I want you to understand how that works because this will be thrown at you for believing the New Testament. Oh, it's full of 200,000 errors. Uh, not really. Okay. Again, I want to quote some scholars here. Sir Frederick Kenyon once again said this, the number of manuscripts of the New Testament, of early translations from it, and of quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some one or other of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other ancient book in the world. Let's summarize the facts and begin winding down. So one, for, for us as Christians, we have earlier manuscripts. There's no other book from the ancient world that has a small time gap between the originals and the earliest existent manuscript copies. Not only do we have earlier manuscripts, we have more manuscripts, close to 24,000. The next closest is Homer's Iliad with just over 600. Not only that, we have more accurate, 99.5% accurate manuscripts. Only 50 of those variants were of any significance, and yet even of those 50, not one of them changed any doctrine that we hold to. Contrary to what critics or skeptics say, there is more evidence for the historicity of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ than for any other event from the ancient world. I want that to sink in. There is more evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, historical evidence, than for any other book ever written. Understand how paramount that is. When critics say you're believing a myth, then you are too. We have more evidence for this than anything that we hold to. This is unprecedented, church. Can you have confidence in your Bible? Without a doubt, you can. Without a doubt, you can. We don't simply take this, in other words, on blind faith. Yes, we take it on faith. We're going to talk about that in a second. I wanted to throw this in here because I love this. My dad's here. He, he will love this too. Archaeological evidence, okay? Archaeology has plenty of, archaeologists, I should say, has plenty of opportunities to discredit the Scriptures. You open to any page of the Scripture and it's, it's purporting to say historical people, historical dates, historical events, historical locations. There are so many opportunities for a skeptic who's an archaeologist to disprove the Bible. Just pick your page. However, Nelson Gluck, who is an archaeologist, says this, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. There's not been one archaeological discovery that's ever disproved anything the Bible reports historically. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. This is so trustworthy, historically speaking and archaeologically speaking. Skeptics use it as a roadmap to do archaeology. I mentioned the book of Acts chapter 27 when we're in it, why it's so important. Luke, Luke is so detailed in that chapter it says that they were, they were taking the, the depth readings of the ocean, right? As they're about to crash in the island of Malta, and it gives it at 120 feet and then 90 feet. Guess what, archaeologists? There's, hey, you want to disprove Luke? 
go test that. Guess what they found? Right where the reef was that they hit, guess how deep the water was? 90 feet. <laughs> Even details like this. Now here's this cool one, okay? This is the latest archeological find. I just, early April, I saw this article. This is a recent discovery made by archeologists, Jewish archeologists in the city of David. It's an official's clay stamp. Okay, so you guys have heard how kings, for instance, they'd seal their envelopes with wax and then put their signet ring on it, okay, as being authoritative. That's what this is. It was a clay stamp. Now on there, you can see the writing. It's Hebrew. It reads this, Belonging to Nathan Melech, servant of the king. That's what it reads. Now there is only one scripture reference in the Bible to a man named Nathan Malek, turn to 2 Kings with me. 2 Kings, chapter 23, verse 11. So this is during the time of King Josiah, who was a good king. He reformed Israel, brought them back to faith and, and worship. Verse 11 says, He removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Malek, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. Bible right there mentions Nathan Malek, who was a servant of the king. He lived real close there to the house of the Lord. The chamber is his house. Servant of the king. Do you, do you begin to see the importance of archaeology? It's not been one archaeological find. Even one little name mentioned one time in the Scripture has now been verified. <laughs> not one archaeological discovery has ever disproven a historical reference. The historical conclusion, if anyone wants to throw out the Bible as being unreliable and not true to the historical accounts, now memorize this, then what you must do is throw out every other ancient work of antiquity on the same grounds. I love that. I love that. By every historical test and standard, our faith is rooted on historical fact as reported in your Bible. What you are reading, church, is not fancy, wishful thinking historical fact. However, facts still must be believed. You can have all the facts. You can know all the facts. I love doing apologetics. Those of you who know me know that. I got my degree in this stuff. I, I, I love it. It doesn't bring anyone to faith, necessarily. You have to believe it. Despite the evidence of the New Testament's historical reliability, many do not believe. Facts are not faith. One can have all the facts, know all the facts, and still not be believing them. So let's end with some Scripture. New Testament inspiration. What do we mean when we say this book is inspired? Well, definition of inspiration literally means God breathed. And what we mean by this word is that we use this word to refer to the process by which the Scriptures themselves were invested with divine authority. For teaching and living. Let's look at some examples. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we get that. 
phrase, inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul writes this, all Scripture. Now how much of the Scripture? All of it. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In fact, 2 Peter there, chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, we won't turn to it. I will turn to chapter 1. But Peter actually calls Paul's writings the Scripture, compares it to the rest of the Scriptures. Look at chapter 1 of 2 Peter. So Paul makes the definition, all Scriptures God-breathed. Peter gives us how it was transmitted. Chapter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Literally, the idea there is, okay, the, the Scriptures originated with God, and the Holy Spirit animated the people to write this down. That's the picture with these two Scriptures that we get with inspiration. Its origin is in the heart of God. For God so loved the world. That's His heart. He then moved John to pen these words. We read John 21 and Luke 1 there. Does the Bible claim inspiration? Absolutely. Does it verify this inspiration historically? Absolutely. <laughs> so, this in my opinion is one of the biggest issues the church needs to be educated on. Because we live in a skeptical world. And, and there's, there's precedence for the argument skeptics make. A myth has crept in. Errors occurred. Yeah, yeah, that does happen. Yes, errors did occur. Here's what we know, though. And so people who firmly try to argue that you have to discredit your Bible because of those, they've never truly looked at the facts. You have the facts now. And, and by the way, like I said, there are tons more I could have included. I just simply summarize the best of it. This ought to lead you, as we read in Psalm 19, to, to just stand and marvel how God has preserved His Bible for every generation. I wanted to say this. When John and Luke and Paul and Tim, or Peter and all these people were writing these passages saying, hey, I was an eyewitness to this. This is what happened. Were they writing in a favorable climate or not? Were they writing in a friendly climate? No. It wasn't until Constantine in 300 AD that the church became the state church and they enjoyed government favor. For John and all the rest to say that they're eyewitnesses and this is what happened, you know what it meant? It meant that they're risking their life. And yet they still said, I saw this happen. John was the only one of the apostles historically that wasn't martyred. Every other apostle and dozens, thousands and thousands and thousands of other Christians died believing these things. So, excellent question, Corbin. Thanks for asking it. Sorry I didn't answer all the ones you had on your paper. That'll be for another time though. Okay? So with that, I'll invite the worship team back up. We're going to sing one last song. And I'll close in prayer. Father God, I just, when I look at this stuff, Lord, I, I, I know that when I read my Bible, 
what you're asking of me is, is simply to believe you. Father, there is merit in simply picking up the word and believing it. For many in our skeptical society, they, they have to have, well, how can I believe that? How can I believe that someone was raised from the dead? And this kind of evidence clears some objections they may have. So Father, I pray that above all, through studies like this, You would strengthen our faith, not just our knowledge, not just our facts, not just the positions we, we take, but Father, that when we crack open our Bible, what we are opening is a divinely inspired, a divinely preserved historical text that reports Your doings for us. And it also reports what you still have yet to do. Father, that's an incredible truth. One that we can believe with all confidence. So Father, strengthen our faith through this. Encourage us. Father, give us compassion. Give us wisdom for those who might be questioning, who might be skeptical. Father, help us engage them. As Paul would go to the Jews and reason, trying to persuade them of these things, Father, Help us to be persuasive that these things are so. Father, give us love. Help us build our foundation upon who You are in Your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name.